The title of today's message is The Distinguishing Mark of the Christian. The Distinguishing Mark of the Christian. In other words, what is essential to being a Christian and how do you know you're a Christian? Let me say a few things. First, first of all, um, just because you attend church does not mean you are a Christian. You can attend church your whole life without being affected and changed by the truths proclaimed. You know, I've been in the church long enough to see people attending Sunday to Sunday to eventually abandon the faith. Uh, being raised in a Christian family does not necessarily mean you are a Christian. Uh, godly parents, godparents are a wonderful gift of God, uh, but you are not born a Christian by being born into a Christian family. You must be born again. External service does not necessarily mean you are a Christian. You can be doing Christian things without necessarily being a Christian. As we see so many controversies of, of pastors falling into scandalous sin, you, you, could, you could see many ministers who, who proclaim the gospel yet live a double life even though they serve Christ, find out that they were probably never Christians to begin with. Jesus himself said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And I think for us who attend church, the most dangerous one is familiarity with religious truth or orthodoxy. Uh, J.C. Rao said, people hear so much of gospel truth that they contract an unholy familiarity with its words and phrases and sometimes talk so fluently about its doctrines that you might think them true Christians. This is the most dangerous one because you can know the facts about the gospel without ever being moved by the gospel. You can have a right and true orthodoxy, but it can be dead and lifeless. You can confess the creeds of the church and affirm the statement of the faith and still not be a Christian. Think about Judas. James 2.19 says, You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe, and they shudder. So how do you know you're a Christian? Well, what is the distinguishing mark that you are a believer? Many years ago, the apologist and Christian philosopher Francis Schaeffer wrote a book entitled The Mark of a Christian. And here's the mark Schaeffer describes that you are able to tell someone that this is really a Christian. He says in his book, We must never forget that the final apologetic which Jesus gives is the observable love of true Christians for true Christians. Love... And the unity it attests to is the mark Christ gave to Christians to wear before the world. Only with this mark may the world know that Christians are indeed Christians and that Jesus was sent by the Father. The distinguishing mark of a Christian is love. Uh, Jesus says uh, to his disciples in John 13, By this all people will know that you are my disciples by your love for one another. So our passage affirms this truth, that love is the distinguishing mark of a Christian. And in Peter's uh, passage this morning, we look at the what, the why, and how of love. 
the command to love, the reasons for love, and the application to love. So you remember, uh, turn to First Peter with me, First Peter chapter 2. First Peter chapter 2, uh, Peter is writing to Christians scattered throughout Asia Minor, uh, being persecuted by the Roman Empire. And he reminds these beloved saints that they are chosen by God. They are sanctified by the Spirit. They have been cleansed by the blood of the Lamb. The God of all mercies has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We have been given an eternal inheritance, and the Holy Scriptures proclaim this great and glorious gospel. And in light of this glorious salvation, he tells us to, to set our hope fully on the grace that will be revealed when Christ comes again. He tells us to live holy lives. He tells us to live humbly because God is our Father, an impartial judge, and a gracious Redeemer. And here, in verse 22, we see a fourth command. is to love one another earnestly. So let's read our passage today. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 22, 1 Peter 1, 22 to 25. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. This is the reading of God's holy word. Notice the what, the command. It's found right there in verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly. That's the exhortation right there. But brothers, we must be define what we mean by love. Love is a word that is so often used that it becomes meaningless because different people mean different things. Uh, the world's definition of love and the Bible's definition of love are they're completely different. I would say our world's definition of love is, in fact, idolatrous. Haven't you heard if, if two people love one another, then we should accept them regardless of how they conduct their relationship? Or true love means complete acceptance of one sexual and gender identity because love wins, right? Love is whatever makes me psychologically fulfilled and happy and affirms my decision regardless of whether God approves. Our culture's view of love is free from rules and boundaries and authorities and no one has the right to tell me what to do because who wants to be against love? The love of our culture is the love of self-discovery, self-realization, self-expression at the expense of biblical truth and rejection of any religious institution. And sadly, churches have been infected with this world's definition of love. Uh, Jonathan Lehman, uh, he wrote a book called The Rule of Love. He defines, this is how the culture defines love. He defines it as an individualistic view of love it finally roots itself in a big view of ourselves and a diminished view of God. God might or might not deserve the glory, but I certainly do. My impulses are good. My instincts are wise. My desires are re reasonable and natural. I deserve what I want. I deserve praise. Therefore, I should define my own mortality, my own existence, my own gender, my own love songs. God can offer a suggestion or two, but finally, he has no right to rule me, nor does any parent, pastor, president who tries to establish rules on his behalf. I know in my heart what love is. Who are you to deny love? 
See, that's not the biblical definition of love. The biblical definition of love is it's a God-centered love. It, it's rooted in the Trinity, the love of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's, it's rooted in, in Scripture. It's rooted in Revelation. A God's love is a holy love. He does not tolerate sin. God's love is a Christ-shaped love. It's a covenantal love. It's a special love for his elect. It's a love that demands righteous judgments and obedience. See, in the world's definition of love, self is supreme, where in the Bible's definition of love, God is supreme. Lehman says that the fallen human being, his or her love is, is like a black hole that just caves in, while God's love is an expanding universe. So when we talk about love, let's make sure we're talking about biblical love. A self-denying, sacrificial, Christ-centered, committed type of love. And Peter says, love one another. Uh, loving one another goes hand in hand with fearing the Lord, with holiness, hoping in the Lord Jesus Christ. And love, we show our love to God by our obedience. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, John fourteen fifteen. John 15, 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. So here we see we need to love one another earnestly, but who should we love? Notice in verse 22, it says, love one another earnestly, a sincere brotherly love. Brotherly love is the word where we get Philadelphia from. It's the, where we... Here, the, the city of brotherly love. And here we are to love believers. Uh, Peter is exhorting fellow believers to love one another. The reasons, one of the reasons why we gather is to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. The church gives the world a 3D and visible picture of God's love. God's love for sinners and his adoption of justified sinners into his family of loving one another. And that's why we are not to neglect to meet together because we gather to stir one another up to love and good works. And uh, let me just say here that uh, virtual church is not church. Uh, you know, virtual church is an oxymoron. Uh, yes, there was a time and place for, for live stream. But, uh, no, we assemble as a church to love real-life people. Uh, we want to encourage people. We want to commit to a local church because love commits and sacrifices for the good of others in Christ. So if you profess Christ and you have no love for church or no love for real people or real names on membership rules, uh, your Christianity is one of words only. Uh, the Apostle John says, by this we know love that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and see his brothers in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Uh, J.C. Rowell in his book, Holiness, he says, we must not merely have a Christian name and Christian knowledge. We must have a Christian character also. We must be saints on earth if ever we mean to be saints in heaven. You know, uh, in Matthew chapter 25, uh, Jesus separates the, the sheeps and, and the goats. Um, in Matthew 25, you don't have to turn there, but he says, when the Son of Man comes in glory, 
and all the angels with him. Then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered the nations, and he will separate one people from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on the right, place the goats on the left, and then the king will say to those on the right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty or give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked or clothe you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison or visit you? And the king will answer him, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. See, Jesus is saying the sheep are distinguished by their love for fellow believers. If you are committed to Christ, you will be committed to God's people. That's why membership is so important, because membership is basically another way of saying we're committed to loving one another as a church family. Members get to know one another beyond the Sunday gathering. Loving one another includes biblical hospitality, includes fellowship, consistent prayer, discipleship. Younger members love older members. Older members love younger members. The local church should be a place of love. Just like the family is the natural place where the child receives love, the local church is the natural place where the Christian receives and gives love. So that's the command. Love one another earnestly. Notice the reasons we can love. Peter gives us two. Verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for in sincere brotherly love, the word purified has the Old Testament imagery of, of priests being consecrated and, and washing themselves before they worked in the tabernacle. It can refer to our moral cleansing when we believe the gospel. 1 Peter 1, 19 says, With the precious blood of Christ we were redeemed, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. It was a past-completed event that has ongoing implications today when you believed in Christ. Peter may be referring to their conversion. So that when you were converted, you were purified. You were set apart for God. And God is progressively sanctifying you. And the gospel demands a response if you are saved. And not only have we been purified when we believe the gospel, but second of all, we have been born again. Excuse me. Throat's a little dry. Peter says, you have been born again. We can love other believers because we have been born through the imperishable seed. And he quotes from Isaiah, all flesh is like grass and its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls. And uh, in this context of Isaiah's context, Israel was on the brink of exile. Babylon was going to exile them. And God was telling the people that even though in judgment, my word will remain. We see that God's word is powerful. We see that God's word has the ability to grant new life, grant regeneration. So because of God's word, we receive God's word, we were born again by God's seed. 
that because we have God's seed in us, we can love the Father, the Son, by the Holy Spirit, and love God's family. James says, therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. This is the power of the word of God. God's word has the ability to save. God ha- God's word has the ability to sanctify. If you're a parent, keep sowing God's word with your children. Keep sowing God's word with your family members and neighbors like a seed. You never know when it's going to grow because God's word is powerful and effective. Isaiah 55 says, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower (coughs) and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing which I sent. We can love one another because we have been purified, we have been born again by God's word, and if God's spirit is at work in you, we see the glorious riches of what we have received in Christ. God's word is living and active, and the outworking is one of love. So, we looked at the command, the what, love one another earnestly. We looked at the reasons, having purified your souls, being born again. Notice the final application, how to love one another. Obedience to the truth. Uh, We love one another truthfully. We love one another according to how God has revealed to um, us in his word. Uh, Biblical love does not affirm someone's sin. Biblical love acts in harmony with God's holiness. We are to speak God's truth in love. John Stott says, Our love grows soft if it is not strengthened by truth. Our truth grows hard if it is not softened by love. We not only love one another truthfully, but notice in verse 22, truth for sincere brotherly love. We love one another sincerely. This, this is the word without hypocrisy. Uh, Francis Schaeffer, he, uh, in his book, the, the Mark of the Christian, he, he, this guy is a bright Christian philosopher. And then in this book, he says, one of the ways you can love one another, he gets really practical. He just says, say, I'm sorry. Say, please forgive me. It's something so easy yet so hard to do. Uh, sometimes churches do not grow not because of lack of doctrine, but because of lack of love and forgiveness. It's a sad reality that one of the great tragedies of the church is that people leave churches when someone offends them. They fail to persevere in love because they fail to forgive and work towards reconciliation. Uh, we as Americans have a commitment phobia problem. And this is why, for some, church membership can be so off-putting and so legalistic in a culture of self-love and self-affirmation. And if a church doesn't make you happy, well, I can find a new one down the street. Or I'll live stream another church, or I'll create my own digital community and follow my own digital pastor. No, we have to do the real hard work of working towards reconciliation and loving one another. Every time you gather for communion, that's a wonderful opportunity to be examining your heart before the Lord and not even partaking of communion if you have something against your brother. 
we ask God for forgiveness for our unkind words, our, our bitter hearts, our backbiting tongues, our gossip and, and envy. We need to examine ourselves in these things. These are things that kill love. Sin is what kills love. So we want love one another sincerely. Thirdly, we need to love one another earnestly. Uh, Peter uses the word uh, being stretched or being strained. Uh, this word is used when Jesus was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. And uh, we see this in Luke 22, being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Or in Acts 12, 5, so Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. First uh, Peter 4, 8 says, keep loving one another earnestly. It's it's, it's being stretched. It's, being, it's a persevering love. It's being strained. Um, you know, uh, I have, a f- I have uh, five children, and uh, with kids, uh, all under six, my love is stretched. It's a straining type of love, but I love them because they are my children. And in the same way, sometimes believers will drive you crazy and stretch you, but Christ's love is a persevering, stretching type of love. So we are to love one another by persevering in love. Um, Diedrich Bonhoeffer, he he wrote a book, by the way, uh, called Life Together. Um, And he said that those who love their dream of Christian community more than the Christian community itself become destroyers of that Christian community, even though their personal intentions may ever be so honest, earnest, and sacrificial. Uh, in other words, you are to love real-life people, not your, idea, your ideal of people, the people right in front of you, with all their flaws and sins as well. We are to love one another sincerely, earnestly, finally, purely a heart that has been cleansed by the blood of Jesus, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Brothers, the, the goal of our preaching is love. 1 Timothy 1.5, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Love has tangible actions with real-life people. And if we want to make sure you have been born again, you have been purified Love is the evidence and the apologetics to the watching world. So love looks very practical, like cleaning the building when no one wants to do it, asking for forgiveness when one has sinned against a brother or sister, visiting a sick elderly member in the hospital, rejoicing when a new baby arrives. Love means giving when it hurts, regular meals, prayers. God gives you thousands of opportunities to practice love within your local church. We can love like this because this is the word, the good news that was preached to you. The good news is that we were unlovable. Our great sin was that we did not love God with all of our hearts. But God's love was an expanding universe who sent his son into the world to be a sacrifice for our sins, to be crucified for our sins, and rise again to give us eternal life, to share in the fellowship of that eternal love of the triune God. 
And we could all participate in this love if we call upon the name of the Lord. So what is the distinguishing mark of the Christian? Love one another earnestly. Why should we love? Because we have been purified by the truth and have been born again by the living and abiding word of God. How do we love one another? Truthfully, sincerely, fervently, and purely because our triune God has loved us eternally in Christ. Rodney Stark, um, he's a professor of sociology, uh, I think, at the University of Washington. He, he wrote a book called The, the Rise of Christianity. Um, and uh, he said one of the reasons why uh, Christianity grew in the ancient world, um, how did this, this small movement of small followers really subvert the Roman uh, worldview? So in the ancient world, there were epidemics and pandemics as well. In uh, 165, there was a, a plague, the plague of Galen, Galen, uh, how you pronounce that. Um, this was probably the first appearance of, of uh, smallpox in the West. And uh, a quarter to a third of the empire's population died, including the emperor Marcus Aurelius. Another plague took place in 241. And uh, Stark, as a sociologist, he said that epidemics made major contributions to the Christian cause had not classical society been disrupted and demoralized by these catastrophes. Christianity might never have become so dominant a faith. And again, he's, he's looking at it of why, why did Christians and Christianity grow during times of pandemics? Well, he says that Christianity offered a better worldview and the paganism of the Greeks. And uh, because the, the Greek gods, the Roman gods, did not have more morality or they, they did not care about the people. In contrast, Christianity offered an ethic of self-love and self-sacrifice and the promise of resurrection from the dead. And the second reason he says that Christianity grew is that while pagans fled to preserve their lives, the Christians stayed to nurse the sick. Following the example of Jesus who, who left his throne to come to a sick, cursed world, Christians stayed in Rome to imitate the self-sacrifice of Jesus because they knew eternal life awaited them. Many did lose their lives, but historians also note that Christians somehow had a lower mortality rate uh, again, they, they're analyzing from a sociological, historical perspective. Maybe they have contracted the virus themselves and they become immune, but they were cared for by other believers. And these Christians even cared for the pagans. And that, because of their love, gave them a testimony for the gospel. And eventually, some of these people would become converted. Tertullian, who as a church father, writes about this period. And he says, it is our care of the helpless, our practice of loving kindness that brands us in the eyes of many of our opponents. Only look, they say, look how they love one another. This is the distinguishing mark of the Christian. 
We are to love one another because we have been purified. Our souls have been purified by belief in the gospel because we have been born again. We are to love one another truthfully, sincerely, earnestly, because of what God has done for us in Christ. So may you love one another, and may you continue to love one another as a church family. And that will mark you out as a Christian. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the church. We thank you for the display of love that has been shown to us through Christ and through his people. May we be the type of Christians that display love one another in sacrificial ways that imitate our Lord. Thank you for this church body. May you build this church body up in love. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.